0: The disciples have locked themselves in the upper room. It's kind of like a safe house. They're afraid, and they're unsure, and they're waiting for a sign. They've heard rumors about an empty tomb. They don't really know what it can mean. And that's when Jesus appears to them, speaks a holy word of peace, tells them to go out and share that peace with others. And one of the first people they encounter is their friend Thomas, He's also a disciple, and as we all know, he has his doubts, and he essentially says to his friends, I'm going to have to see this thing before I believe it. I think we know this story. Um, The Revised Common Lectionary, which is sort of like a biblical calendar, it prescribes the stories that we use in worship, and we use it somewhat, you know, um, loosely here at FUMC. But the idea of the calendar is that, um, you know, each scripture appears once every three years in a three-year rotation. But that's not the case with the story of the Doubting Thomas because the lectionary includes this story every single year on the Sunday immediately following Easter. It's as though the people who put the calendar together knew that Once the lilies were wilting away, once the flowered cross was taken out of the churchyard, once all the catharsis, all the volume of Easter Sunday had settled down, it's as though they knew that we were still left in an upper room, in a safe house, unsure, questioning, How do we reconcile our natural doubts with such an unnatural thing as resurrection? It's a question that we find ourselves facing once again today. I grew up, as some of you did, maybe many of you, I'm not sure. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up attending church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening. Each of those trips to church included a worship service, and each of those worship services included, at the end of the service, an invitational moment. The invitation is a time when you're invited to come to the front of the church to make a public confession of faith before the community. This time can be awkward. It can be especially awkward if no one goes down to the front of the sanctuary. And when that happened um, in my childhood, I remember that the pastor would sometimes address the congregation with the following question. He would say, do you know that you know? Do you know that you know? Each time I heard that question, and if I heard it once, I must have heard it a thousand times. Each time I heard that question, I felt more convicted by the fact that I harbored doubts. I can remember staying awake in bed, fearful of the implications of those doubts. Because I knew that assurance was was a gift of God that was given to those who truly believed and so my doubts were evidence to me of a weak faith but I tried my hardest to believe I read and memorized large portions of the Bible I attended all the church programs I went on mission trips I prayed continuously I even read um, books specifically about assurance books that the pastor had recommended to me thinking well maybe I'll find what I'm looking for in a book And every time I heard that question, do you know that you know, every time I heard that question, all I could honestly respond inside was, no, I don't. For a long time, I thought that I was alone in my doubt, perhaps like Thomas. Um, I thought I was the only one who hadn't been in the upper room when Jesus showed up the first time. But I wasn't alone. I went to college, and I met other people who had doubts. I met a person who grew up in a similar church as I did, um, and this person is still a very close friend of mine today. And I remember one day, he asked me a question. It was it, He asked it as a joke, um, and, and chuckling, he looked at me and he said, hey, Scott, how many times have you been saved? Well, I knew exactly how to respond to keep the humor alive, I said, ah, oh, Yeah, I don't know, five or six times probably, Um, you know, but that last one's starting to wear off thinking I might need to go back to church this weekend, go down to the altar. And we would chuckle and we would laugh about that. And but as so often happens, humor is an avenue for truth. Humor even or maybe even especially sacrilegious humor can show us something Um, something true that we otherwise might miss. But more than whatever truth our humor exposed, at the time it gave me something that I really needed. It showed me that I wasn't alone, that there were other people out there like me, people who struggled with faith in churches that did not admit to doubt. I was glad to meet people like myself. And I would eventually meet even more people, people like John Wesley. You know, we recently told parts of his story to our confirmation class. We told about how he was an ordained deacon in the Church of England and how he accepted the call to cross the Atlantic Ocean and to um, do ministry work in the young colony of Georgia. We talked about how he came face to face with a fear of death during a storm out in the open ocean, how he was so crippled by his fear of death. But in the midst of that storm, we also told how there were some German Christians on board, Moravians, and how these Moravians were steady and strong, no fear, no doubt in the face of the sea's tumult. They just Set in the hull of the boat and sang their songs of praise as the sea um, poured in over the side of the boat. And John Wesley was moved by their faith and convicted of his own lack of faith. Well, that experience out on the open ocean, along with the fact that his mission in Georgia did not go well, would later lead Wesley to write the following Concerning his experience of faith, he says, By the most infallible of proofs, inward feeling, I am convinced of unbelief, having no such faith in Christ as will prevent my heart from being troubled. We should remember that those words were written by an ordained pastor. By the most infallible, of proofs. I am convinced of unbelief. Wesley wrote those words in January of 1738 and Methodist devotees will certainly know that later that same year he had a particularly strong conversion experience. A first hand encounter with God wherein he felt his heart strangely warmed. And this is known as the Aldersgate experience. There's a lot, I think, we can learn from John Wesley. John Wesley, like Thomas, heard about the resurrection from others. Wesley certainly heard about it from his father, Samuel, from his mother, Susanna. He also heard about it from his brother, Charles. And he took a great deal of hope from them. He entered the ministry. He traveled across the ocean at a time when survival was anything but guaranteed. And yet, like Thomas, he still craved that firsthand experience with God. Just hearing about it from his family was not enough. He wanted that firsthand touch with God. And I don't think we should fault John Wesley for this, and neither should we fault Thomas. After all, Thomas craved nothing more than what all the other disciples had already been given. And beyond that, I think Thomas's response is rather exceptional, because upon seeing Christ, Thomas, our doubting Thomas, is the one who boldly says, my Lord and my God, something that none of the other disciples had yet said about the risen Christ. And after that firsthand experience with Christ, St. Thomas is uh, believed to have traveled further than any other apostle in the early church, taking the gospel of Christ as far as the southern coast of modern India. And again, I don't think that's different um, from John Wesley. We see how how, um, there's a lot of comparisons here because after Aldersgate, he established a movement, the Wesleyan movement, the Methodist movement and it transformed his native country of England, and it spilled over into the colonies of America, where preachers like Francis Asbury would take that movement to the ends of the new world, even as far as Haywood County. And I I wish that the story ended there. I I wish that that um, that was the exclamation point at the end of doubt. But lest you think that all was peace in John Wesley's strangely warmed heart after his Aldersgate experience, lest you think that all doubt was settled in that moment for John Wesley, consider this. Consider what he writes in his journal just a few short months after aldersgate in january of 1739 he writes the following he says i affirm i am not a christian now indeed what i might have been i know not if we read if we read the copious writings of john wesley we know that he struggled with the same question that plagued me as a young child. Do you know that you know? He eventually felt compelled to say that assurance was a gift that only some were ever lucky enough to receive. And so I imagine that St. Thomas as he took the gospel of Christ to the furthest reaches of the known world, might also have still struggled with that question. In spite of his first-hand experience with the risen Christ, in spite of his amazing declaration of the Godhead, my Lord and my God, in spite of all that, it's not hard for me to imagine that Thomas had some dark nights in his soul. Being in a strange place, enduring countless hardships for the sake of a gospel that that Paul even describes as foolish to some people, that we might say is preposterous. Who could blame someone? Who could blame anyone? Who could even blame Thomas, the one who saw and touched the resurrection himself? Who could blame him? If he should doubt. I think the time has come that we should recognize and admit that doubting and that our doubts are common in the experience of faith. I think we should consider once again the song that Becky sang on Good Friday and its familiar words. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, O Lamb of God, I come, just as I am. I think we should consider the hymn that we sang on the day after Good Friday. We sang it at a funeral for one of our dear church members. And it says, In our end is our beginning. And in our doubt, there is believing, unrevealed until its season. It's our hymn of promise. It seems to me that the proper posture for faith is not the absolutism demanded by questions like, do you know that you know? Rather, we should come to God with a bold honesty much like the Father in the ninth chapter of Mark who stands before Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. So, some years after college, I found myself working at a church in Maryland, and the associate pastor and I were pretty chummy with each other. And I knew that it was safe for me to ask that irreverent question to her. And so I said, hey, Alicia, Alicia, how many times have you been saved? And she closed her eyes. And then she looked up and she said, many, many many times. I think John Wesley would have liked that answer. I think St. Thomas would have liked that answer too. And I know that when this would-be ordained pastor finds himself crippled by questions, crippled by fear, crippled by doubt. I hope that in moments like that, I can, I can cling to that answer many, many, many times. And so I say to you, How many times have you been saved?